1: America's president-elect is choosing his dream team. What message do Mr Biden's latest nominations send about his economic game plan? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist. And coming up, the return of deal season. Salesforce is eyeing up slack. United, could the pair take on Microsoft. This slack purchase is kind of like another point
2: on the graph towards becoming a sort of all-singing, all-dancing, number two or even number one enterprise software giant.
1: And the publishing giant building a behemoth of books.
3: Agents and authors fear that there will be too much of a focus on blockbusters and that smaller circulation books and unknown authors will suffer.
1: First, Joe Biden is swiftly filling in the gaps in his political appointments. On November 30th, America's president-elect named key members of his economic team. The list includes a host of firsts. Mr Biden wants Cecilia Rouse from Princeton University to chair the Council of Economic Advisers. She'll be the first African-American woman in that role. Neera Tandon of the Centre for American Progress would be the first South Asian American to direct the Office of Management and Budget top of that list is Janet Yellen. The former head of the Federal Reserve and respected academic will be the first female Treasury Secretary. It's a political role as much as it is an economic one. And though in politics, as in life, it's impossible to please everyone, in choosing Janet Yellen, Joe Biden may be able to do just that.
4: Janet Yellen is a savvy choice for Treasury Secretary for the Biden administration.
1: Ryan Avent is our free exchange columnist.
4: In addition to being a capable policymaker, Someone who ought to satisfy all the various constituencies within the Democratic Party, those on the progressive left, as well as those more toward the center. And she also ought to be broadly acceptable to the Republicans in the Senate who are going to need to confirm the choice.
1: She was a guest on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, in the spring. She had a strong position on the threat posed by
5: China. The U.S.-China economic relationship is out of whack, and it's not just trade or even especially trade. I think it's investment and in technology transfer, uh, intellectual property and protection by China of its own domestic market so that foreign firms don't have a chance to compete. There are national security implications also of some of these technologies. And she was
1: also highly ambitious on America's role when it comes to tackling climate change.
5: I want to see the United States take leadership here. I strongly believe that pricing carbon emissions has to be part of uh, the solution to this problem. It creates the right incentives in the marketplace for people to change their behavior and technological innovation and investment. What we've tried to do is bring together Republicans and Democrats and big businesses in all sectors of the economy and also environmental. Ryan, what do you make of her?
4: So I think she brings an even temperament, a sense of diplomacy, a high degree of expertise. And then also, I think, a very clear way of thinking about uh, some of the important policy questions that the administration is likely to face in the future, both on the subjects you mentioned, but also on some of the critical macroeconomic issues relating to stimulus and cooperation between Treasury and the central bank that are going to loom large in the first few years of the Biden presidency.
1: Now, you mentioned that her experience of the Fed will prove useful given that the central bank and the Treasury are going to have to cooperate to help the recovery along. What do we know about where she stands on monetary policy?
4: Well, Janet Yellen has a reputation as being a bit of a dove. But she also was not someone who who really rocked the boat, and I think she was someone who kept her eye on the traditional central bank concerns with inflation. Some people felt the move under the Fed while she was the chair to begin raising interest rates in 2015 and 2016 was perhaps a bit premature. I think that at Treasury, her experience with the Fed is going to be extraordinarily useful, though, because uh, what we've seen is that Democrats are not going to have a large Senate majority they're not going to have the opportunity to pass a whopping stimulus that's going to kind of supercharge recovery. And so the interaction between fiscal policy and monetary policy is going to be hugely important. The Fed's going to have to do more heavy lifting than I think people thought was going to be the case. And no one is better positioned to understand what the Fed's constraints are and what Treasury can best do to assist the Fed in those efforts than Janet Yellen.
1: When she spoke to The Economist Asks earlier this year, she was clear on instances where she thought fiscal policy had been counterproductive in particular, President Donald Trump's
5: tax cuts. I think having tax cuts that large in a situation where the economy is deep into an expansion and there is a long-run fiscal problem, I think that they were not necessary and frankly not appropriate. But, you know, they did give stimulus to the economy and I can't say that the stimulus has been unwelcome, but um, I do worry that we have an unsustainably large budget deficit.
1: And bearing in mind both her deficit concerns and the need for further stimulus, what do you expect from her in terms of fiscal policy?
4: I think Yellen is not as sold on the the idea that fiscal policy can be used without constraint uh, as some other left-leaning economists are, as perhaps some of the other members of the Biden economic team are. Having said that, I I don't think there's any circumstance in which her sort of caution on the issue of the deficit is going to be the constraint on fiscal stimulus. The constraint is going to be coming from Republicans in Congress. And so I think probably the hope the Biden team has is that she may be better able to bring some Republicans on board in terms of a new fiscal package than perhaps other candidates would have been.
1: And in recent days, we've also learned more about the other names on Biden's um, economics team. So, if, for example, let's take the, the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, we know that Cecilia Rouse, a uh, labour economist from Princeton, will chair it. And two campaign advisors, Jared Bernstein and Heather Boucher, are expected to be members. How do you expect them to shape the council?
4: The president-elect has chosen a really interesting slate of candidates, and I I think it probably reads to a lot of people as a very left-leaning set of economists, but that's that's not necessarily the case. They're left-leaning in the sense that their focus is not on the traditional stuff like tax cuts and, and regulatory policy as keys to boosting growth. And it's more on making sure that workers are benefiting from growth and, and focusing on things like education as drivers of economic growth. And I think that's something that that actually the past few decades have sort of ratified as a way of seeing the economy. Uh, Heather Boucher has focused quite a lot on inequality as a drag on growth, family support policies as being something that's critical to, to support long-run growth. Jared Bernstein was someone who who was a chief advisor to, to uh, Joe Biden when he was the vice president and I think they have a, a strong working relationship and C.C. And Rouse is interesting too. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion here in the U.S. about whether cancellation of student loan debt might be something that the Biden administration would pursue both as a stimulative policy and as, as something that would boost economic justice. And uh, Cecilia Rouse has done some interesting research on the way that student loans interact with the decisions of students in higher education and, and the way that can be a detriment in some cases. It signals that Joe Biden is interested in kind of taking a, a broader and a more holistic view of, of how to get the economy going again than perhaps has been true in the past.
1: Not all of Mr. Biden's economic appointments will be as unifying as, as Janet Yellen seems to be, as you were saying earlier. Neera Tandon will lead the Office of Management and Budget. And, and like Treasury, it's a position that requires Senate confirmation. Now, the inclusion of her name has drawn some criticism from both left and right. Why is she a more divisive figure than Janet Yellen?
4: <laughs> well, Neera Tanden certainly is a more divisive figure than I think any of the other choices uh, that Biden has made for his economic staff. And I think that's for a few reasons. Part of it is dispositional. Part of it is about ideology and that she has taken positions that progressives and those on the left have, have not uh, approved of. It, it's an interesting choice. I think there is some sense that perhaps Biden has named her because Republicans are going to be out for blood and and looking to claim at least one head and perhaps Hers is the head they'll focus on and others will sail through. I don't know if, if that's, in fact, what Biden has hoped for. But I do know that there are a lot of people on the left who will not be sad if Ms. Tandon is not confirmed.
1: And taken together, is there a broader message that we can take from Mr. Biden's selections? The appointees to the Council of Economic Advisors, for example, seem to be more left wing than, say, Janet Yellen at the Treasury is. Is this a very pragmatic decision or is there some sort of broader thinking behind this? What do you make of the team as a whole?
4: Well, I think a few things stand out. One is the the diversity of backgrounds, and that's unique, I mean, from top to bottom. Secondly, I think there is a, a real passion for dealing with climate change across all these appointments. And I think even if you look at his choice to run the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, perhaps going to get some criticism from the left having worked at BlackRock, a private investment firm. you know It's interesting to note that the work he's done there has been on driving private investment into to climate-related activities. So that's it's really going to be a central focus of the team, I think. And I think that's something that's sort of novel to see. I mean, even Democrats who have focused quite a lot on this, this issue, often when they get into power, have not devoted the attention to it that it really deserves. And so it's a big deal. And I do think it's tempting to kind of look at this in terms of factional infighting and, you know, does the progressive left have the edge or is it more about centrists? I think that really does kind of miss the point a, a bit and that instead what we're seeing here is, is someone in President Biden who has a very down-to-earth view of what makes the economy tick, who has chosen people who are very interested in ensuring that economic growth benefits. It's about points of emphasis and not necessarily about a left and right.
1: Ryan Avent, thank you very much.
4: Thank you.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up
1: front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, the trials of 2020 have pushed many companies to look inward, So the volume of global mergers and acquisitions is significantly lower than last year, in America, by more than a quarter. But after a dry summer, deal season is back. On Monday, S&P Global agreed to buy IHS Market for $44 billion, the second-largest corporate acquisition announced so far this year. The merger would combine two of the biggest providers of data to Wall Street. To read more about the deal and find out how the market for financial data got so hot, subscribe at economist.com slash offer. You'll find the link in the episode notes on your app. The seasonal wave of consolidation is lapping across industries. Third quarter results for Salesforce today may be accompanied by a big announcement. The business software giant is reportedly in advanced talks to make its biggest acquisition yet to buy Slack an office chat platform popular with startups, Slack's share price soared from under $30 to more than $40 on the news. A decision is expected imminently. The
2: expectation is that Salesforce is going to announce this acquisition of Slack today, um, i.e. December 1st, after the US markets close. Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor. You've seen already that Slack's market value has really shot up to around £24 Salesforce is going to pay a premium, presumably even on that. So this deal is going to be one of the biggest ever deals in the US software industry. It'll be the biggest since IBM bought Red Hat for $34 billion in 2018, if it goes ahead. I think it's also an exciting deal just because Slack is such a remarkable company. The product is is so good that for years it really sold itself through word of mouth. It grew incredibly rapidly and it's come to embody a trend called the consumerisation of enterprise technology. So workers themselves are choosing the technologies that they're using rather than IT departments sending them down from on high. And why does Salesforce want Slack? Because they're quite different kinds of company, aren't they? That's right. Well, everyone in US software knows that Salesforce has been on a really kind of pretty aggressive roll-up of lots of firms. And you can see that it's building a real juggernaut in business software It's got a 20% market share in customer relationship management software, which is the core bit and what it started with. Um, In 2016, it bought around 10 software firms, including lots of them with a sort of artificial intelligence focus and then a few years ago it really sort of ramped up the the size and frequency of its acquisitions so in 2018 it bought mulesoft for 6.5 billion dollars and this is a firm that helps connect back end legacy it systems to the cloud cloud meaning service accessed over the internet 2019 it bought tableau and that's a data analytics platform and the tableau acquisition in particular brought salesforce into sort of direct competition with Microsoft. And then you come to the Slack purchase and what it does is really um, add a whole new dimension to Salesforce of communication and collaboration. And again, the the Microsoft analogy is quite important here um, because I think what Salesforce is trying to do is kind of try to replicate quite a lot of the Microsoft stack. So this Slack purchase is kind of like another point on the graph towards becoming a sort of all singing, all dancing, number two or even number one enterprise software giant.
1: And what's in it for Slack, Tamsin? Could it be supercharged to take on other big professional communications tools, do you think? Well, Slack, as I mentioned, it's a remarkable product.
2: But what the, the past year or so has really underlined is that it has lacked a strong video offering, and of course, video conferencing turned out to be the, the killer app of the COVID era. So Zoom has got 300 million daily active participants now. Teams has got 115 million daily active users. Um, Slack's got 12 million daily active users is the most recent number Slack itself has complained about Teams, Microsoft Teams, and that's because Microsoft, as usual, it's a, it's a kind of bundling maestro, bundled Teams, and so it's, in inverted commas, free within the bundle. Slack has complained loudly as, about that. But Microsoft simply pointed out, you know, we created Teams to, to combine the ability to collaborate with the ability to connect via video. So Slack needs help to reinvigorate itself And I expect that Salesforce will very quickly and swiftly address Slack's lack of video. And the other thing, of course, is that Salesforce is an absolute sales and marketing machine. It has an army of salespeople who are now going to go out, if this deal goes ahead, they
1: will go out and sell Slack
2: like it's never been sold before.
1: So this sounds very much like a win-win for both companies. Do you see any downsides to the deal? I
2: do think that there are risks. As usual, it's it's a question of the short term versus the long term. In the short term, which is what um, investors are more focused on, Salesforce may well be overpaying for Slack. You know, Slack is looking a bit weak at the moment. It has negative operating margins, so from a bottom line point of view, it's it's not going to be brilliant in the near term. You know, investors are a bit worried that Salesforce is just perhaps a little bit indiscriminately buying high price company after high price company in a sort of search to bolster its revenue growth. And they're looking to see, does the value really come through? And the second risk, of course, is, is integration risk. It would be difficult to combine the various technologies underpinning Salesforce and Slack, and also just to combine the different working cultures. And of course, Stuart Butterfield Slack's founder, he sold Flickr um, to Yahoo in 2005 and Flickr unfortunately you know, didn't progress as, as it should have done. But I do suspect that the cultures of Slack and Salesforce are probably not so different. They're both really open, creative and a bit sort of alternative in tone.
1: Those risks aside, Tamsin, do you think this deal means that Mark Benioff, the boss of Salesforce, is going to be joining the big tech big league? That's an interesting question. I think for the moment,
2: Mark Benioff is probably better known in a way than Salesforce itself for his positions on corporate social responsibility and purpose and stakeholderism. But Salesforce is worth 230 billion at this point in terms of market cap. That's not so far off Facebook, for instance, at 780 billion. It's certainly still a long way off Microsoft at 1.6 trillion. But you can see that if the Slack acquisition really catches fire and you get sustained Revenue growth of the type that Salesforce has had of around 20% a year. I mean, it's a really fast-growing company. And then if Salesforce carries on on its acquisition trail, getting the right candidates, integrating them well, you could see it continue to scale the heights and join the sort of elite club of tech giants. And Salesforce has a really great advantage, which is that it's a cloud-first company It doesn't have any of the sort of legacy architecture that holds back some of the older enterprise technology giants like Oracle or IBM. Remember also that it's playing in the same market that has propelled Microsoft to a $1.6 trillion valuation. And that's really about the fact that so many companies are spending increasingly heavily on digital transformation and Salesforce should be able to
1: participate in that. Tamsin Booth, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, what do crossword puzzles have in common with Ernest Hemingway and Donald Trump's least favourite niece? They're all part of the eclectic back catalogue of Simon & Schuster, by revenue the fifth biggest English-language book publisher and another headline prize in this deal season. In the days before Thanksgiving, bidders jostled to buy Simon & Schuster from Viacom CBS, an American media group. On November the 25th, Bertelsmann gained the upper hand. The German parent of Penguin Random House outbid Rupert Murdoch's News Corp Media Group with an offer of
3: 2.2 billion dollars. The English language book world is dominated by five big players, of which Penguin Random House is by far the biggest. Vendelin von Bredau is our European business correspondent. Number two is French, is Achette Livre, which is owned by Lagardère, an ailing French conglomerate. And HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, is the number three. And how would this merger change that picture? It changes it in the sense that it makes the biggest player even bigger. And so in America, the merged Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House would control 70%, 7-0, of the market of literary fiction and almost one third of English language books generally. So really a big chunk. Are authors, agents and other players in the industry concerned about this consolidation at all? So agent and authors, you know, they fear that there will be too much of a focus on on these blockbusters that generate a huge income and that smaller circulation books and, and unknown authors will suffer. And they also worry that the new Penguin Random House plus Simon Schuster will dominate too much of distribution of books. Robert Thompson, the, the CEO of News Corp, expressed that at the annual general meeting. But of course, they were also rival bidders, so he had an agenda. But he basically says that Penguin Random House will become far too dominant, and that would be detrimental to distributors and retailers and authors and agents. So he warned of the merger, but but then of course they were bidding too. And do you expect trustbusters to step in at all? I'm certain that the regulators will take a hard look at, at the merger because Penguin Random House really is so dominant. Earlier this year, America's Department of Justice nixed a merger of Sengage and McGraw-Hill, two publishers of educational books, And they did it in a way that they demanded so many divestments by the two merger partners that it just didn't make sense for them anymore. But uh, Thomas Rabe, who is Bertelsmann's boss, is rather confident that, that regulators will give the merger a green light. His argument is that they rarely block mergers that reduce the number of players from five to four. That's different when it's four to three, or of course, three to two, but five to four he thinks is okay. Then he says that Bertelsmann's takeover in 2013 of Penguin did not fall foul of antitrust guardians. And he says if you look at the last few years, the leading five biggest publishing houses have actually lost market share to smaller rivals. And then, of course, there's Amazon, which not only sells books but also publishes, in particular, self publication is, is big with Amazon. So for all these reasons Mr Rabe thinks it'll be okay and and he's not too worried about antitrust action.
1: And what does this deal mean for Viacom CBS which is selling Simon & Schuster?
3: Well for them they decided Simon & Schuster is not part of their core business they they want to become really big in video streaming. And they need cash for their new venture, their video streaming venture. So they also hope, of course, there's no antitrust action because that could delay the deal and hence the transfer of funds to their account. And what about for the buyer? Is this ultimately a good deal for Bertelsmann? I think it probably is. I mean, they are paying a very rich price. So, you know, there is the danger of of overpaying. But they had a good year, actually, like most publishers of books. They had a, a, a tough first weeks during the pandemic because everybody was basically mainly stocking up on pasta and, and loo paper. But since the start of the year now, book sales are up 6%. And that, of course, benefits the biggest player in the market most. And that's Penguin Random House. And they had a huge success also with a publication of President Obama's memoir, which in the first 24 hours, when it was up for sale, sold something like 890,000 copies. But there's even a revival of smaller and more local books. And I spoke with David Steinberger, who is the chief executive of Arcadia Publishing, and they publish um, local history books. And he said that people are always predicting the decline of book publishing. I've done so for years now, but it's actually been very resilient. And he's rather optimistic about the future of his industry. The
1: printed page lives to fight another
3: day. Exactly. Well, I thought that was for once really uplifting
1: news. Good news for us, I think, as well. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Quite right, yes. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We read them all and it helps us immensely. I'm Rachna Shanvog. And in London, this is The Economist.
4: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project,